Margaret McGowan had seen a lot in her short life. Hailing from Glasgow, she had come down to London with big dreams and a feisty spirit and found work as a prostitute. But not the kind of prostitute who worked in London's more dodgy areas. No. Margaret McGowan worked at the high end of her trade and her clients included businessmen and politicians. Indeed, she had been involved in the most notorious scandal of the 1960s, the Profumo Affair, in which the Secretary of State for War, John Profumo, was revealed to have had an affair with the same cool girl as a Russian spy. Under her work name of Frances Brown, Margaret had testified at the trial that resulted from the scandal, along with Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice Davis, two women whose names would forever be etched into British political and cultural history. There was no doubt about it, Margaret McGowan had already lived an eventful life, and at 21 years of age, she now considered herself to be in her prime. On the evening of the 23rd of October, 1964, she was chatting with a friend in Kensington, a prosperous area that was enjoying the benefits of the swinging 60s. A man approached her in a Ford Zodiac car. We can't know exactly what was said, although it seems certain that the man offered to pay her handsomely in return for sexual favours. Margaret McGowan waved goodbye to her friend and climbed into the passenger seat of the Ford Zodiac. She was never seen alive again. Hello again. Welcome back to the Ministry of History podcast, a podcast that aims to take a look at some of history's lesser known characters and stories. Today, I'm bringing you part two of the Hammersmith nude murders, also known as the Jack the Stripper murders, a series of killings committed by a mysterious murderer in suburban West London in the 1960s. This murderer was subject to the second largest manhunt in British policing history, and the fact that he was never caught makes this Britain's largest unsolved murder case. In part one, we saw how at least four, but probably six women fell victim to this brutal killer. The women's names were Elizabeth Fig, Gwyneth Rees, Hannah Tailford, Irene Lockwood, Helen Barthelemy, and Mary Fleming. They all had similar victim profiles. They were short, slim, petite. They were working as prostitutes and they were all strangled to death, their bodies dumped in the nude. Towards the end of part one, we saw some more patterns begin to emerge. The victims started to have their front teeth removed from their mouth and police also noticed tiny flecks of industrial paint scattered across their skin. This led police to theorise that the killer was an industrial worker, exposed to such flecks of paint at work. Perhaps he even stored the bodies at his place of work before he got rid of them. In today's episode, we'll see how these theories weren't actually far from the probable truth, but we'll also see how theories were not enough to save another two women from falling victim to our brutal killer. 
We'll also discuss the investigation, how Scotland Yard drafted in one of its top detectives to pursue the case. We'll see how the investigation was intensive, but ultimately fruitless. At the end of this episode, we'll discuss the possible suspects and zero in on one man in particular who the circumstantial evidence seems to point to. Remember, if you want to follow me on Twitter for all the latest updates about blogs and podcasts, it's at Ministry History, all one word with no of in the middle. Please also remember to check out the blog for great pieces on some of history's most interesting people and stories. That's the Ministry of History on Google, and it's one of the top results. Now then, let's return to West London in the middle of the 1960s, where a killer lurked in the darkness. After the discovery of Mary Fleming in July of 1964, Jack the Stripper seemed to go quiet for a bit. But in the autumn, he was back with a vengeance, claiming at least his fifth, but probably his seventh, victim. As I outlined at the start of this episode, Margaret McGowan was slightly different from the other victims. Of course, there were similarities. She had been strangled to death, her body was dumped in the nude, some of her front teeth were missing, and the telltale specks of paint were found on her skin. She was also short and slim and worked as a prostitute. But Margaret McGowan worked at the higher end of the prostitution trade. Her clients were businessmen and politicians. She had been involved in the most notorious scandal of the 1960s, the Profumo scandal, and she had testified at the trial that came as a result of that scandal. She was friends with Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice Davies, the two most famous femme fatales of 1960s Britain. Furthermore, while other prostitutes worked more dodgy areas, such as Shepherd's Bush, Margaret McGowan plied her trade in Kensington, still in West London, but far from Jack the Stripper's industrial, suburban stomping ground. Kensington was prosperous, glamorous even, and a part of London that was fully enjoying the swinging 60s. But even accounting for the supposed excitement or even glamour of Margaret McGowan's life, her work as a prostitute still left her vulnerable. Vulnerable to an attack from a violent, vengeful, misogynistic man. And that's exactly what happened to poor Margaret McGowan at the end of October 1964. After waving goodbye to her friend and climbing into the Ford Zodiac, she wasn't seen alive again. Her body was discovered over a month later, on the 25th of November, 1964, in a car park in High Street, Kensington. Now, you may have noticed at the start of this podcast, and just now, that I said Margaret McGowan climbed into a Ford Zodiac. We know this, because of the friend that Margaret was with the night of her disappearance. That friend was able to give police a description of the car she had climbed into. It was the biggest break yet, but it still wouldn't be enough to catch the killer. 
Jack the Stripper's final victim was discovered at dawn on the morning of the 16th of February 1965 on the Heron Industrial Estate in Ealing. Her name was Bridget O'Hara and she was a 28-year-old Irish immigrant who also went by the name Bridie. Like most of the other victims, O'Hara had struggled to find her place in London and had turned to prostitution as a means of supporting herself. Unfortunately, it was this line of work that exposed her to a character such as Jack the Stripper. O'Hara had been missing since the 11th of January and the fact that her body was discovered over a month later supported the police's suspicion that the killer stored the body somewhere before he disposed of them. As it turned out, this suspicion would be confirmed as fact soon after O'Hara's body had been discovered. Now, she bore all the signs of a stripper victim, but detectives on the scene noticed something else. They noticed that her body had been slightly mummified, as if it had been stored somewhere warm. After a search of the surrounding area, they found a lockup that had a transformer, a transformer which emitted more than enough heat to have kept the body slightly warm. And opposite that lockup, the police found a spray paint shop. In the meantime, Scotland Yard recalled one of its top detectives, John DeRose, to lead the investigation. Nicknamed Five Day Johnny for his apparent ability to solve a case within five days, DeRose mobilised hundreds of officers and had them interview practically every industrial worker in West London, including all 7,000 workers on the Heron Industrial Estate. He also ordered plainclothes officers to patrol the main roads leading in and out of central London at night, recording licence plates and making note of any cars they saw on multiple occasions. DeRose settled on the theory that the killer was probably a small man, hence his targeting of smaller, petite women, whose job exposed him to spray paint and who perhaps worked at night and perhaps had knowledge of a secure lockup. Within a week of Bridget O'Hara's body being discovered, DeRose was given the news he had been hoping for. The paint in that spray paint shop, opposite the lockup with the transformer, was found to match the paint on O'Hara's body and on the bodies of all the other victims. The police had found the killer's storage space. Armed with this news, John DeRose excitedly called a press conference in which he, somewhat truthfully, suggested that his force was close to catching the killer and completely falsely claimed to have narrowed the list of suspects down to 20 men. But an arrest would never be made. The plainclothes officers recording license plates would never be utilised. Just like that, the killings stopped and the police quietly shelved the case without ever solving it. But why did they shelve the case? And more importantly, who were the suspects? Who were the men who could have been the elusive Jack the Stripper?
One of the reasons the police quietly shelved the case was that their main suspect committed suicide. Mungo Island was a middle-aged Scot who worked as a security guard on the Heron Industrial Estate and had access to the killer's lockup. In 1970, five years after the last murder, John DeRose gave an interview in which he hinted that the killings had been committed by a married father. Mungo Island, who already knew the police were watching him, took this as a sign that he was about to be arrested. Soon after the interview aired on television, Island killed himself, leaving a note for his wife explaining that he, quote, couldn't stick it any longer. Could Mungo Island have been the killer? Well, the police certainly thought so, and they unofficially considered the case closed once he died. He certainly did have access to the storage unit identified as the place where the bodies were kept, and his regular night shifts would have afforded him the opportunity to take the bodies there without being seen. But perhaps the police were too quick to judge him. Perhaps the circumstantial evidence isn't quite what it seems. According to Jane Lawrenson in the Chiswick Herald, recent research has suggested that Mungo Island was actually back in Scotland when several of the murders occurred. Another possible suspect was a man named Kenneth Archibald. In April of 1964, a 57-year-old Archibald strode into a police station in Notting Hill and voluntarily confessed to the murder of Irene Lockwood. The police were stunned and couldn't believe their luck, but immediately began to doubt Archibald's story. For a start, there was no evidence that he had been anywhere near the locations of the murders, nor that he had any idea where those locations actually were. His story was inconsistent, full of holes, and though he stood trial in June of 1964, he was quickly found not guilty. It seems that Archibald wasn't in full command of his faculties when he made his original confession. A slightly more promising suspect was Freddie Mills, a British boxing champion who was involved in organised crime. Now what's interesting about Freddie Mills is that a lot of London gangsters of the time, including the notorious Cray twins, were convinced that he was the West London murderer. The second thing about Freddie Mills was that he was assassinated in July of 1965 the same year the killings stopped. But aside from that, there isn't much more to go on. And anyway, if the killer was thought to have been a diminutive man, then a 5 foot 11 boxing champion probably wasn't the guy. I should also say that some of the top detectives in the investigation suspected that the killer was one of their own. They thought that the killer must have some inside knowledge that kept him safe from capture, some inside knowledge that could explain why he was able to evade the increased police patrols, especially by the river. Again, however, there's no more evidence than pure conjecture to support this. The final suspect I'm going to mention 
is Harold Jones. This is where it gets interesting. Jones, who also went by the names Harry Jones or Harry Stevens, was seemingly a quiet man from Abertillery in South Wales. He had moved to London in the 1940s and lived an anonymous life with his wife and daughter at several addresses in the Hammersmith area. But Harold Jones is a tempting suspect because there was a reason he used different names. There was a reason he had left South Wales. In his hometown of Abertillery, Harold Jones was anything but anonymous. Way back in 1921, over 40 years before anyone coined the term Jack the Stripper, a 15-year-old Harold Jones was convicted of the brutal murders of two young girls in Abertillery. The details of his crimes are chilling. He lured eight-year-old Frida Burnell to the back of his family shop, strangled her to death and then stored the body for a day. He dumped the body in a nearby street, was arrested and charged for the murder, but acquitted due to a lack of evidence. Upon his acquittal, he was welcomed back to Abertillery like a hero. Townspeople were convinced that he had been set up by the London detectives who had been sent to assist the investigation. One man who welcomed him heartily was George Little, a next door neighbour and close friend of the Jones family. Just days later, Harold Jones lured George Little's 11-year-old daughter, Florence Little, into his home and slit her throat. Florence's body was discovered in the Jones family's attic and it was young Harold's father who furiously chased him through the streets and apprehended him. Jones's tender age saved him from a date with the hangman and he instead served 20 years in prison for both murders. When he was released in 1941, he often returned to his parents' home in Abertillery and even made sure he was seen visiting his victims' graves. A show of remorse? Or perhaps something more creepy, even sinister? Regardless, the folk of Abertillery were not too keen on him being back in the area, and Jones decided to start afresh in London, where he eventually married and became a father. Harold Jones's past crimes on their own are not enough to say that he was Jack the Stripper, but there is a lot of circumstantial evidence. Firstly, there's the simple fact that he was a proven killer, a killer who had strangled someone to death before and had a habit of storing bodies before he got rid of them. What's also consistent is the victim profile, small, vulnerable people who the diminutive Jones could overpower. He is known to have lived very close to the area in which all of the bodies were discovered, and he even lived within four streets of both Hannah Tailford and Bridget O'Hara. The murders stopped around the same time that Jones was struck down by bone cancer, from which he would die in 1971. Perhaps most striking of all, Jones was once employed as a metal worker 
and a caretaker on the Heron Industrial Estate in Ealing. Due to poor record keeping in the middle of the 20th century, the investigators on the Hammersmith murders never made the link between their case and a convicted child killer living in the area. Indeed, the link was only made in the 2000s by a Welsh writer named Neil Milkins. Milkins was researching for a book about the Abatillery murders and realised that Jones had moved to Hammersmith. He became convinced that Harold Jones was the mysterious Hammersmith murderer and in this assertion he is backed up by Professor of Criminology David Wilson who actually introduced myself to this story with a BBC documentary in which he examined the case and put the rap firmly on Harold Jones. If I personally had to suggest who the killer was, I'd also be inclined to say it was Harold Jones. But ultimately, we'll never know for sure. All that we can know is that at least six, but most likely eight, innocent women lost their lives to this cruel and sadistic killer. Some of these women could still have been alive today were their lives not so brutally cut short. Their children are still alive today, having grown up without mothers. One positive aspect of this case not being widely known is that the killer doesn't have the same notoriety as other serial killers whose infamy has overshadowed the stories of their victims. But then, by the same token, the stories of the Hammersmith victims are not widely known either. Their lives were tragically cut short and justice was never achieved for them in this world. But let's hope that some amount of justice can be achieved for them by telling and recognising their stories. The Ministry of History is not an academic source. I'm influenced by all types of writings and documentaries. But for this podcast, I'd like to particularly acknowledge the influence of the following articles. Jack the Stripper and the Hammersmith Murders, an article by Richard Bevan for the Crime and Investigation website. The Serial Killer Who Visited Chiswick, an article by Jane Lawrenson for the Chiswick Herald. How a Welsh child murderer may have become one of London's most notorious serial killers. Article by Nathan Bevan for Wales Online. TV show in bid to solve the 1964 murder of Barrow Women. Article by Eleanor Ovens for the Newcastle Mail. I'd also like to acknowledge the influence of a BBC documentary presented by Professor David Wilson. Dark Sun, The Hunt for a Serial Killer.